Welcome to the next edition to our podcast, Integrated Care Stet. That means now. <laughs> <laughs> Produced by Walker G. Production. My name is Dr. Greg Mader, and I'm accompanied here by my co-host, Leah Getz. Hello. Welcome. Mm-hmm, thanks. <laughs> so today, uh, I want to talk about um, drugs. Yes. And so one of the popular things in the world now is um, using various controlled substances, which are maybe even becoming less controlled in certain circumstances, to enhance uh, psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. What, do you th- what do you think about all this? Well, I'm, I am going to speak less from a research place and more from like an anecdotal place and from an ex-bartender that has experimented with drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Anecdotes are more fun anyway. Um, so I know that they had what came out, ketamine, mushrooms, MDMA. MDMA they've been doing for a while mm-hmm. or uh, underground. It's been an underground kind of thing. But my thought, having experienced those type of drugs is they do make you feel really good. And I, I have certainly seen people when they get a lot of them, you know, will have, it can either be a relatively, you know, significant history of trauma or an extremely um, significant history of trauma, but getting in that place where you kind of expect that, Hey, each day is going to be the same. It's going to suck. I'm not going to get a job. They, you know, those, in addition to those negative thoughts, there's, decrease in functioning you're you're feeling poorly it's affecting your relationships so being able to use i i do not know about the dosing you know the logistics of it but being able to use those kinds of drugs to i'm going to say reset you know the the brain and how that feels um god why would we not allow patients to do that there was an article i read one time about a woman this is not one of my patients, about a woman who had a history of physical abuse from her mother. And when she got in trouble, she was locked in essentially like a really long trunk. And she would have to lay there for hours in the dark. So that created a lot of PTSD symptoms. As a grown-up, it decreased her functioning. She was having a hard time. I think she'd been married more than once. She was having a hard time in intimate relationships. I mean, it just infected everything. And um, she had two, again, I don't know the dose, but she had two sessions with MDMA. And the three-month report after the, the, they do a report right after the session. Then they do a three-month report. And then there's an, it's either six months or a year. I can't remember. Essentially, are you still feeling the effects of this? How has this really changed the way that you operate? And the correlation between taking those drugs, having that session with a therapist they're not just taking those you know those drugs having that session with a therapist and being able to work through those things has increased people's functioning as measured by how they're functioning their relationship are they going to work you know uh, parenting their kids those types of things so I think that for some people that have harder histories than others that yes you can whatever we can get to help you I am on board with it as long as we're not hurting anybody else and it's not something that, you know, is super risky. We're not going to, you're not going to get a huge dose of ketamine or MDMA because it may kill you. So thinking about it in that sense is the perspective that I, that I come from. So is the idea behind some of these treatments to maybe dissociate some of the emotion from the memory so that the memory can be processed without having the, maybe the physical reaction to recalling the memory? So that's like EMDR. Yeah. That type of treatment, which I'm a little bit obsessed with and don't know enough about because mm. I don't do it. But there's some therapists that I work with that that have been trained in it and have been providing that kind of treatment for a number of years. 
And the way that they explain that to me, which essentially is what you said, there's not that physiological reaction, but it takes that painful memory and moves it to a different part of the brain. So you can push on it a little bit more, like you would a wound, right? <laughs> you can push on it a little bit more. Does it split open? Is it scarred up? What does that really look like? So I think that there's certainly non-substance treatment that can be used that still has such a really good neurological base for it, like EMDR. All right. So then what kind of a person would want to uh, choose these uh, substance-based treatments? I don't know. I feel like that's a loaded question. Huh. because. Or I guess what would I, motivate somebody to, to try this? I think one thing, I think the acuity of symptoms is one thing, right? Living with like suicide ideation every day, that nobody wants to do that. So I think that that's something that would be hard. Any sort of symptom, doesn't matter what it is, if you're sleeping too much. But when those symptoms get to be too much, people are going to self-medicate anyway, because we hate feeling like that. So that being the case, I don't know that it's a specific type of person or type of patient. I would think it would certainly be more progressive, like... I can't see my mom being like, yes, let's do some MDMA and, <laughs> and go through this therapy session. So I think there may be a generational component to it. I would be curious, maybe people on, on both sides of that dichotomy, people that, that were not, that were kind of cavalier about drugs and will just do drugs because they're there, it's part of the culture. Um, to be able to use them for something good, I think is fantastic. And I, I would think that also on the other end of that dichotomy, people like you that are very versed in medicine that can understand when you ingest this drug, this is really the way that it's going to affect specific parts of your brain. I would be curious if there weren't people on both sides of that that were like, yeah, I would try it. You know what I mean? Would you ever try it? Can I, don't, I, I don't think so. Can you say that on air? <laughs> For the record, I think yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious. I'm curious more so about like mushrooms. And part of that is because they're just like, once I finished college and bartending, you know, I had done enough by that point. I just didn't really, I wasn't into it anymore. Mm -hmm. But I never, uh, I didn't do mushrooms. They just, nobody was doing them. It was like, oh, if you want a trip, then you're doing LSD or ecstasy. Nobody's going to, <laughs> going to search for mushrooms in Texas. <laughs> um, but being able to be here and read more about it and have more of those progressive treatment providers start to use it in different ways, I find just incredibly interesting. Yeah, it's a hard topic for me and, and uh, hard, I think, to decide if I would use it. It's, it still seems fairly experimental, mm. and uh, I would still be worried about some of the sequelae or after effects yeah. that we haven't yet looked into. So I dropped LSD in 93. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you still not Right, a long time ago. <laughs> and I will tell you two things. One... I do not advocate for anybody to take any sort of drugs. Let me preface that right now. And number two, that was one of the most fun nights of my life. <laughs> so having that experience, right? I only did it one time, but having that experience was something I think that also made me a little bit more open to, well, hey, maybe maybe this could work in a small dose, you know, for these symptoms or I don't know. I just had such a good experience on it <laughs> that I I can see how it would just open up a different, I don't want to be the, you know, expand your mind, man, <laughs> but it would open up a different section of that. I can totally see how, how and why people would want to use it for that. Yeah, it seems to make some sense that maybe obviously the, the human brain is quite powerful and has all sorts of uh, moving pieces to it, if mm -hmm. you will. Uh, and so maybe by accessing 
those more remote parts, we can uh, figure out how to heal ourselves. But at the same time, I, I, I personally worry that uh, maybe we don't know all the after effects and we might be causing more lasting harm. Do you mean like with, with substance abuse? So somebody does this MDMA session, mm-hmm. they feel so good. I want to do this again. Oh, that's so. That's interesting. I, I suppose that is a risk. I would think so. Look uh, at opiates. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a that's a great example of that. Also, uh, it seems like particularly with some substances, it seems like you run into people who have really overdone it, and now their brain's a little bit fried, and they're crack. They're they're, they're kind of slow cognitively and and not real engaged in the world around them, and and so I I worry is that. Uh, effect common with other substances and and so are we obviously we're microdosing for these therapies and so using a smaller dose would hopefully reduce some of those after effects but well, also, you, also have we have we really looked into this i don't know you'd have to prove that those after effects are actually after effects you uh, know what i mean th- how, how think, is that not baseline you think that guy i saw was just dumb <laughs> i'm not sure i know that i have seen longer um longer I would say lingering side effects from crack use more so than anything else. Yeah. Um, even meth. I had a client, God, probably a long time ago. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't even living in Colorado. And I think that she had used for, she started when she was 13 and she was 21 by the time that I saw her. Wow. So she had used for such a long number of years that when she was sober, she just was so emotionally dysregulated. Mm. And I don't know if that's a chemical thing, but I know that that did not return. So mm. she um, started on antidepressants, which I think was hard for her to be compliant with for a lot of different reasons. But that was something I remember talking to her about it, that this, you know, just where she's at now, this may be something that she manages for the rest of her life, mm-hmm. as opposed to... You know, I'll I'll work out and eat better and take care of myself and and my body will recover. I don't know that it would. Yeah, that so that uncertainty makes me worry a little bit. Yeah, it'd be nice if we had long term data and could really prove that things are certainly safe and we can, we're okay to proceed. Obviously, that data is hard to come by. Well, I know you can get it in other countries. Portugal is one that I think has decriminalized drugs. I've heard that. It's very interesting. I think that's right. Um, and I think their abuse rates and even deaths uh, actually. Uh, decreased mm-hmm. after they legalized everything. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I think that's a cultural thing, though, too. Like, yeah. there's just if they if they have that, and they also part of their culture is you know work life balance and taking care of yourself and making sure that you know you're getting enough sleep and you're eating right. If that's part of their culture, then you don't have that encouragement towards addiction and substance abuse. Mm, yeah, very true. Because they're not. What are they self medicating? Yeah, certainly there are a lot of confounding factors in there, but it's, yeah. it is an interesting uh, case study, I guess. Yeah, I think so too. I'm I'm gonna switch back to opiates because that is what I'm coming up for me right now. You heard about those two trials, right? That I think one was in Oklahoma. I can't remember where the other one is. Maryland, maybe, or somewhere along the eastern seaboard. Johnson and Johnson was one company. So you're gonna pay <laughs> this many millions of dollars in fines. And they do this, and then the next thing I hear is, we admit to no wrongdoing. Are you in the habit of giving away hundreds of millions of dollars when you didn't do anything wrong? Like, that's just such horseshit. Yeah. It seems like someone killed a hooker here. They're trying to cover it up. Right. So (laughs) I was, um, I think the, I'm not going to remember the name of this family either, the ones that created Oxycontin. Right. So they were found guilty, 
and then promptly filed for bankruptcy. Uh, yeah, I, re- I read that. With I also oh, part of that article was God. that they had two thousand pending lawsuits against them, and of course they have billions of dollars both in cash and assets. So trying to uh, claim that they're bankrupt is uh, a stretch of the imagination. I'm just <laughs> appalled by that. I'm appalled by that 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 is even a loophole that they can get out of. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what what happens on the legal front with that. So, looking at opiates, when you're looking at that, and my understanding as a clinical trainer for clinical teams at the state, being able to look at, so there's data, there's a map that um, was used in this training that looked at a 10-year difference between all of the counties in Colorado where they were at with overdose rates Hmm. versus where they're at now. Mm -hmm. And it is significantly higher. It was, it's shocking. Like usually when I show that, you can hear an audible gasp from people that are looking at it. Yeah, I'm well aware of that data. It, uh, it's something that troubles me quite often as well. So did they tell doctors that it was not addictive? Is that really true? Verbatim. Okay. <laughs> and actually, they, uh, some of the medications had um, some kind of uh, deterrent engineered into it to deter attempts at abuse. So, uh, oh, you they, couldn't crush it? Yeah. So yeah, because like, addicts don't get around that at right, all. Right. So yeah, like one of the things was if they put a the uh, antidote, I guess, in the formulation so that if it gets crushed, that activates the antidote and it's it's not longer active. Right on. But I think it's all a bunch of horse crap and um, people can figure out how to do whatever they want with that stuff. That's the thing that is always surprising to me. Like people that want to get high, I promise you, they will figure <laughs> out a way to do it. Yeah. So I, I, and I agree with you that that is absolutely something that we need to be very cautious about and think about. Because when you look at all of the collateral damage that is caused by substance abuse, adding to that population of people that really struggle with that is going to be the downfall of society. I agree. Yeah, that that aspect really makes me nervous with these um, substance-aided therapy sessions. I'll coin that term for the moment, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wonder what the criteria is that you have to have, that you have to meet in order to be appropriate to do that. Mm-hmm. I hope that it is stringent. I hope so, too. I, I fear that um, people may be cavalier in some settings, but I don't know that that's true either. Maybe. Uh, no, I think that's right. But yeah, <laughs> it, it seems very possible. <laughs> well, I think that's kind of the, you know, there's certainly benefits to being progressive and on the cutting edge. And that's sometimes one of the downsides, I feel like, of being on the cutting edge is there's that lack of structure and you can kind of do whatever you want. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate pushing limits just because that feels right to me. <laughs> yeah. And that is something that will, I don't know if, it, it'll have to be regulated. I can't seeing it happen without it, without some sort of regulation. I'm thinking regulation like by like Dora. Mm, yeah. Not so much the police. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And that balance of being safe, but still cutting edge is really a hard balance. Mm. Uh, I've struggled with that myself sometimes where... There's a newer treatment. Um, it seems very promising. I really want to try it out on, on some of my patients, but I also want to wait until there's more long-term data to see what the longer effects are before yeah. I jump into anything. Well, and, and I think I've told you this before. So I went to a training. It was probably four or five years ago, and it was a physician that was doing the training, even though it was a mental health training. And one of the things that he said was when he prescribes people opiates for any sort of chronic pain or acute pain, is he asked them if they smoke a cigarette within an hour upon waking. Oh. So there's a correlation there, according to him. 
that an hour upon waking for patients that are ingesting nicotine within that hour, they are more likely to become addicted to every other drug. Oh, that's very interesting. And as a former smoker, I didn't smoke in the morning. I don't. I didn't smoke all. This is so stupid to even say it <laughs> all day long because we would wake up at I don't know noon, right? And I wouldn't smoke until maybe four or five, getting ready to go to the bar, and then that, and then you would smoke at work and after work, and then that would be it. So that made me feel better about myself when he said that. I was like, oh, look at me, I'm handling it. <laughs> I'm all. I'm, I've got it together. And I think I was still a smoker whenever I, I heard this. It was somewhere close. I think I've been five years almost clean. No, it has been five years. Oh, congratulations. Five years clean. Five years clean from nicotine. I'll give you a tiny uh, applause. Yay. I took that's, Wellbutrin. That's it was super helpful. That's great. Yeah. I think so, too. And now when I'm <laughs> – and I think a lot of former smokers this happens to, but now when I see people smoke, I can smell it. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, the cigarettes that I used to smoke never smelled like that. So I don't understand <laughs> how these cigarettes smell like this. It's just surprising the things that you notice that you would... That's right. Beth knew me as a smoker. So that you would never have... Uh, I would never have really thought about before. But smoking is another thing I feel like is directly related to mental health. Depression in particular. How do you mean? Well, um, so there's research that's been done on adolescence and smoking. And they find that adolescents that smoke have higher rates of depression. Mm. And like just right now, I could probably point out a few. Well, kids that that smoke, maybe they have more parents that smoke. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have, um, maybe they are have parents that are neglectful and don't care what they do. So I feel like I can make arguments to kind of punch holes in the research. Yeah. Nonetheless, it this study found a correlation between teenagers that were depressed and them smoking. And so doing tobacco cessation, that's one thing I always tell people. Like, I, even if you are, yes, I'm ready to quit smoking. I've got all these things in place. I bought a gym membership. I'm training for a race. Nobody else smokes in the house. Like, you are legit and ready to go. <laughs> My guess is you will still experience some sort of dip in mood. So I, I think that's another thing that keeps people – I think this is all behavior. When we make some sort of a change, we have symptoms of what that is. So, like – I just started an adjunct professor position and it is kicking my ass. So when I think about like, well, and I don't think about smoking now, but certainly 10 years ago, if I was doing this, it would be, I would be dying for a cigarette after class. Like, yes, let's just go and debrief, hang out. And so since I don't have that, what I find happens about 48 hours before is now I'm anxious and irritable. <laughs> <laughs> so I just deal with those and eventually those will go away. But I think any kind of change, whether people are coming in for mental health issues or they need to lose weight or they need to get out of a relationship that they that's not healthy for them, whatever that is, any sort of change, even if it is super positive, still can create symptoms. I would say... My guess is in most people. Yeah, so yeah, that's all very interesting stuff. I think it's probably worth pointing out that in that study of um, mood disorders and cigarettes, that that was a correlation, and then so they they weren't able to prove any causation there. Well, you can't prove causation anyway. Right? Yeah, that would be really hard to do. Uh, and, and then we could argue all day about whether um, people with uh, markers for mood disorders later on start smoking early, or whether mm. nicotine actually has an effect on um, the mood of the mind. 
It does. I can tell you that from personal <laughs> experience. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd say those are all safe bets. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's uh, obviously a very complex picture with a whole lot of moving, moving pieces in it. Yeah. That makes me think of, you know, who Dr. Nadine Burke Harris. Do you know who she is? Oh, my God. I no. love her. I love her. <laughs> so she is, I think she worked for Kaiser. Um, she has a YouTube video. If you have not seen it, Google it and watch it because it is awesome. So she started talking about ACE scores, which is Adverse Childhood Experience Scores, yeah. mm-hmm. and how that correlated with specific diagnoses later in life. And they created a study. I'm not going to be able to quote it because there's so many other things in here. But they essentially created this study to to see how this affected people. And so they determined that because people that had higher ACE scores, that had higher levels of adverse childhood experiences, so growing up with a parent that had a mental health issue, substance abuse history, um, maybe went to jail, maybe they were neglectful, uh, abusive. There's a few other ones that are on there. So the higher the score, the more likely you are to develop lung cancer, even if you don't smoke, Hmm. heart disease, even if you don't smoke. So there's things like that, that that she talks about that I feel are so incredibly interwoven into the integrated care model that that we see like in clinic Mm -hmm. so again i went off on a tangent i don't know how i ended up here but she is phenomenal i she should come on too dr harris here's your invitation that's right if you would ever like to come on and see me fangirl out please come on but yeah i'm i am certainly all for people doing what they need to do provided that they're not hurting anybody else in order to take care of themselves yeah, I, I, uh, I'm less confident of uh, how they're getting help, but I, I do want to make sure people are safe before they try these things. Yeah, and I don't. I'm. I fall more on the other side. Like I believe mm. absolutely, you should be safe. And you know, maybe there's an, um, a calculated risk that <laughs> that's okay to take. Also, <laughs> that's possible. That's yeah. Possible. yeah. <laughs> well, I think we are at the end of the podcast already. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. This is Integrated Care Stat. That means now. (laughs) I'm Dr. Greg Mader, accompanied by Leah Getz. See you next time. Yeah. Take care of yourselves.